Thanks, Glenn. And good morning, Christ Central. I'm glad that you are here at the 930 service. Uh, as Glenn just prayed, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, excited that we are beginning uh, this new ministry year together, launching in. If you missed Timothy in the beginning, this is kind of the beginning of our new ministry year with an internal ministry fair happening down below after the service. And so hopefully you'll stick around and go, go to that and check out all that's happening in the life of our church. This is also the 10-year anniversary of Christ Central, and so we're excited. Uh, yeah, come on, I like it. Very excited about uh, celebrating this year, all that God's done in the last 10 years, and uh, we're also excited about what he's going to do this year together. Uh, there's an image I've been using to describe our church uh, as we become more rooted and established in this city, and it's the image uh, of an aircraft carrier. Uh, an aircraft carrier is a ship that allows other planes to, to land, rest, and be refueled in order to then be sent back out on the mission at hand. And we are a church, Christ Central, that welcomes people, uh, everyone, to come here on Sunday mornings across three services. We welcome uh, people to come into our city groups that are gathered in homes throughout the week all over the triangle. We welcome people into Bible studies, fellowship opportunities, service opportunities. And our prayer is that as we welcome people, we would also be a, a church that invites people to rest and to be renewed in order to be refueled, to then be sent out to live on God's mission in your workplaces and classrooms, in your neighborhoods and dorms and activities and all the places and spaces that God has put you. And the question becomes, as everyone comes into our church, is what are they, what are you being filled up with? Is it moral marching orders, mandates to live by, mottos that motivate you throughout the week? The answer is actually an encounter with a person. That we actually believe encountering Jesus is the very thing that gives rest, renewal, and then the power to be sent out to live on God's mission in the world. By the way, this was how the early church and the first Christians experienced Christianity sweeping through the Roman Empire like wildfire. I mean, the Roman Empire, it was far more violent, far more pagan and secular than Durham, North Carolina, and Chapel Hill and Raleigh, the Triangle. It was a highly sexualized culture in which Christians were transformed and to sexually chase and pure people. It was a highly self-centered and oppressive culture in which Christians were transformed into a generous and hospitable people. In a relatively short amount of time, Christianity in the first centuries changed the lives of those who were living on the margins and those who were the educated elite. And how did that happen? A person. The Lord Jesus Christ overtook the lives of individuals and communities and radically changed how they viewed themselves and how they viewed God. And so for the next 12 weeks, we're going to look at encountering Jesus in the four Gospels. And we're going to pray that the person of Christ would overtake us and give us rest and renew us and refuel us and then send us out to live on his mission in the world. This morning, we're going to look at the first encounter with Jesus in John's gospel, John chapter 1. It's with John the Baptist, who's not the same as the author of, of the gospel of John. And here's what I hope we'll see this morning in John the Baptist's encounter with Jesus. Is that encountering Jesus transforms how we view ourselves and how we view God 
that then transforms how we live in the world. And so if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand, as it is our custom, to give attention to God's word to us this morning in John 1, verses 19 to 34. Your Bibles and your bulletin is on the screen behind. This is God's word to us this morning. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken and revealed yourself to us through your word, and we ask that we might see Christ this morning, that we might behold the Lamb of God. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. We ask that you would speak to us and transform us in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, in David Zoll's new book, Low Anthropology, he recaps the great 2012 film, Flight, as a way of depicting how finally having an appropriate view of oneself can lead to experiencing true freedom from self, thus transformation. Flight, it stars Denzel Washington, who plays Whip Whitaker, a pilot who miraculously crash lands a commercial airplane after an in-flight mechanical failure, saving nearly everyone on board. Whip's an alcoholic, and his ability to save the plane from crashing may have been his liquid courage. And after the hoopla over his heroism subsides, questions linger in the minds of those investigating the flight. And Whip's life devolves into a painful illustration of the most common lie we tell ourselves, that we are in control, that there is no inner conflict happening within our hearts. When people try to tell Whip, they argue with him to change his drinking. They point out the stakes in drinking, but he doesn't budge. And eventually Whip finds himself before a grand jury. And the chief investigator explains that they found two empty vodka mini bottles in the plane and only the crew would have had access to them. The investigator then projects a cinema screen-sized image of a flight attendant named Katarina. 
And she had perished saving a young child during the crash. She and Whip had been romantically involved. The investigator asked if Katerina had drunk the vodka. The vodka. Whip starts to sweat. He goes silent. Could you repeat the question? He finally says, whispering, God help me under his breath. The investigator asks again. Whip responds, she didn't drink it because I drank it. I was drunk that day and I am drunk now. And the courtroom erupts in chaos and Whip is taken to jail and the film cuts to prison where he's talking to his fellow inmates in what appears to be a recovery meeting. And listen to what Whip says. I was finished. I was done. It was as if I had reached my lifelong limit of lies. I couldn't tell one more lie. Maybe I'm a sucker. Because if I had just one more lie, I could have walked away from all that mess, kept my wings, my false sense of pride. But at least I'm sober. And I thank God for that. And this is going to sound really stupid coming from a man who's locked up in prison. But for the first time in my life, I'm free. Whip's desire to drink was changed. Not by conscious effort or willpower. But when his heart was moved by a woman he loved to surrender himself to the losing battle within and to ask God for help. And what he found, despite all appearances to the contrary, was freedom. Freedom from pretense, freedom from struggle, freedom from himself. Whip faced the paradox that lives within all of humanity, which the Bible teaches that all human beings are one, created in the image of God, and two, have sinful hearts that deceive us. That every single one of us are paradoxes. That someone can love a person fiercely and in the next moment utter a phrase that cuts as deep as a knife. Someone can be an incredible parent and an addict. And if we are honest, we all know this paradox. It's what some theologians have called a doubleness that lives within our hearts. It may not be alcohol for you like it was for Whip. But many, many of us have experienced this doubleness while binge-watching our favorite TV show. All right, we, know that, we know that feeling where we know we should go to bed, we're tired, we're getting sleepy, we know getting up the next morning is going to be painful, but we think, just one more show, and we hit the next button, and we watch it, and we pay for it the next day. That's the, the doubleness within our hearts. Right? We know this doubleness in our sexual lives. The research is clear on the destructiveness of pornography and the pain and hurt of sleeping around, but you might find yourself saying, just once more and then I'm going to stop. Could apply this doubleness to all of the alluring forces that we face daily. Comfort, pleasure, food, money, power, success. The dilemma comes when the question is posed like it was to John the baptizer in John chapter 1 verse 19, who are you? When that question is posed to us, who are you? We can feel torn in two because we, we have to ask, who are we really in the midst of this doubleness that is true of my life? And John's encounter with Jesus shows us that an appropriate view of self and a view of God sets a person free to live in and to love the world. And so I want us to look at two things this morning, a view of self and a view of God. Let's look first at a view of self in verses 19 to 27. We could say John's view of himself is low. I mean, John responds to the question, who are you? 
in verse 19 with four I am not statements. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And lastly, in verse 27, he says, I am not worthy. Now, let me be clear. John's view of himself is not self-destructive. It's not self-flagellation. It's not low self-esteem, which I think poses as humility, but it's more of an inferiority complex that, it's self, that is self-centered because of being overly self-conscious. Right? John's view of himself is low in that he is able to own who he is not so that he is then set free to be who he is. That's what finally happens to Whip in the movie Flight. Now, our temptation... And it's all of our temptation is to deny or avoid the reality of who we are not. And we do this in many ways. I want to give you a few. The first way that we can do this is that we can ascribe attributes to ourselves and to others that are not really there to make ourselves feel better about ourselves in comparison to others. It's what some psychologists have called laddering. We constantly look at ourselves in comparison to other people, and then we have to put an attribute on someone to pull them down, and we have to put an attribute on ourselves that's not there in order to inflate our view of self so that we can move up the ladder and feel better about ourselves. Another way that I think we deny or avoid who we're not is that we focus maybe on who we were back then or maybe who we can be in the future. It's kind of a sort of time travel which allows us to escape the present reality of who we're not. And I think one, a, a big way that Christians can do this is by highlighting only one of the aspects that the Bible teaches is true of humanity. That we're created, yes, in the image of God, but neglecting the teaching of sin. And when this happens, churches and Christians want to affirm everything about a person's life, never encouraging an inner search of the doubleness that lives within all of us. That's why here at Christ Central, we believe confession of sin, it's central to the Christian life. It is central to Christian worship. We encourage confession of sin in your daily walk with Christ. It's why we give enough, I wish sometimes it could be longer, space and time for us to confess our sin corporately and individually, privately, every Sunday as we gather here. Now here's the point that scripture makes and is making here that feels counterintuitive. That if you really want to be free from yourself, you have to embrace the reality of your doubleness and sin. You have to embrace what you're not so that you can turn away from yourself to encounter Jesus and be set free from yourself. And so the second thing I want us to look at is the view of God in verses 29 to 34. Look at verse 29. It says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Theologian Dale Bruner calls verse 29 the Mount Everest of John's gospel. Behold, look at, marvel, stare at your sinfulness? No. At your limitations? At your failures? No. Behold the Lamb of God. For every one look we give to our sin, we take at least 10 looks to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, this would have been a well-known phrase for the Jews when John proclaimed this. And in the Old Testament, the first time a lamb shows up is with Abraham in Genesis. 
When God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Abraham and Isaac, they're going up on the mountain, both with heavy hearts, Isaac confused about what's happening, and Abraham says, behold, fire and wood, God will provide a lamb. Because if there is a lamb, Isaac would not have to die. And hundreds of years later, God's people are in bondage in Egypt, and the angel of death is going to strike down all the firstborn sons in Egypt. And so each Israelite family kills a lamb and smears its blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the family. For if a lamb was slain, you would not have to die. And the Jews would have known very well Isaiah 53, that someday the Messiah would come and he would be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his stripes, we would be healed. He would be a lamb led to the slaughter. Can you imagine all that is wrapped up in the proclamation by John as Jesus comes towards him and he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the original language of Greek, this sentence contains five definite articles. The is used five times. Behold the Lamb of the God, the one who is taking away the sin of the world. Each definite article making its own definite point that Jesus is not just one among many lambs given by one of many gods as one of many possible liberators from only some of our deep sin for only a portion of the entire world. No, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the timing of this proclamation as John is baptizing in the Jordan River and then Jesus comes to be baptized in the Jordan River is crucial for us understanding what is happening here. Now picture the scene. People, people are coming to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan River to symbolically wash sin away into the, into the waters. And now Jesus comes to John and he wants to be baptized into the very same water it's a profound message that sinners are washing away sin into the water and Jesus is being baptized with sin-polluted waters. It's a staggering reverse of position. Jesus baptized into sin so that we can be baptized into righteousness. And here at the very beginning of John's gospel with this proclamation and Jesus' baptism, John is pointing to Jesus' final baptism which Luke 12, verse 50 calls a baptism with blood, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus would be cursed so that God's blessings would be poured out upon us, where God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It is a wonderful exchange to behold the Lamb of God slain blood spilled so that our sins might be washed away and his righteousness granted and given to us. Let me ask you this. If someone were to ask you, are you a Christian? How would you respond? Would any part of you answer with, I'm trying to be a better Christian? Or I hope that my life can have a little bit more good in it than, than bad in it. If so, you're not quite yet understanding Jesus and the great, great news 
that Christianity proclaims. Because to be a Christian, it means embracing I'm a double-minded person, a sinner, unworthy, but Jesus. He has taken my sin away and he has given me his very own righteousness. Now, I've got to be clear about something here. Beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's not a one-time affair that we do when we become Christians. It, it is something that we do over and over and over for the rest of our lives. Right? The once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross has continual implications for us as Christians. The verb takes away in verse 29 and baptizes with the Holy Spirit in verse 33 are in the present participle in the Greek language, which means it should be read like this. Jesus is taking away sin and Jesus is baptizing with the Holy Spirit. This is huge, church. Don't miss this. The proclamation of the Lamb's once and for all sin removal through the cross continues the ongoing sin-removing experience in the Christian's life. God has reconciled us to himself objectively through Christ. And as we preach this truth over and over and over, beholding the Lamb of God, we subjectively experience in faith the accomplished work of Jesus. That we are forgiven and we're made righteous. And the application of this low view of self and this high view of Jesus, it's profound. I want to give you just three applications. The first is, when, when this is true, we're set free from our own voice of guilt. The guilt you feel when you get really honest and you can own that who you present yourself to the world is not who you are in private. The guilt we all feel when we own the doubleness of our lives. We can own it, we can confess it, and then we turn and behold the Lamb. Second application is that we're set free from the voices of other people and what they might say about us. Accusations, misunderstandings will come our way in different ways and people will ask, who, who, who are you? We can be honest, like John the Baptist, about who we're not. And deep down we know no matter what people say about us, we actually know that they don't know the half of it. That our sin is far deeper than anyone can ever point out. And so we hear the voices of other people and then we turn and we behold the Lamb of God and we're set free from the power of other people's voices. The third application I'll give you is, when this is true is that we're set free to love other people rather than judge and be critical of other people. People who have a high view of humanity, right, a high view of themselves and others and not an appropriate low view are quick to become critical and judgmental as they expect much of others. Guilty. I'm guilty. When people have a low view of humanity, we can have realistic expectations of other people. Love people for where they are and for who they are and who they're not. If you've read the four Gospels in the New Testament, then you know Jesus, who Jesus rebukes more than anyone are the, the religious leaders, the Jews, the Pharisees, who think highly of themselves. And the people who understand Jesus more than anyone are those who embrace their sin and their need and then they encounter Christ and Jesus sends them out to love God and to love others, to be on his mission. One of my favorite TV shows of the past number of years has been Ted Lasso. 
Uh, Ted is an American football coach hired to be a British soccer team coach, and he's very friendly, uh, something I'm quite clueless. In the first episode of season one, uh, there's this great scene of him throwing darts in the, the English pub against the, the owner of the team. And, and, and as he's doing this, he recalls a quote from, uh, a quote from Walt, Walt Whitman, which I think becomes one of the main themes of the show for all three seasons. And the quote from Walt Whitman is this, be curious, not judgmental. And I think Ted Lasso was honey to the soul for so many people during the pandemic and all of the social unrest we had during the number of years, the past number of years, because judgmentalism and criticism soared in most of our hearts in a lot of ways. I, I, th I think Ted gave us a picture of someone who embraced who he wasn't. And he was set free to kind of be curious about other people rather than to be judgmental. He was compa compassionate and he loved other people. And all three seasons, if you watch it, then, then you see him kind of be curious to, to meet people where they are rather than to be judgmental. And people's lives are transformed. And the soccer team is transformed because of the way Ted loves them. See, when we embrace sin in ourselves and in others, we can have an appropriate view of humanity. Expectations can be tempered. And, and it leads us to less judgment and criticism. And we go beyond Ted Lasso because we turn from ourselves and we behold the Lamb of God. And we're blessed to forget ourselves and to be overwhelmed by Christ and then sent out into this world to love with the love we've received. John the Baptist encounters Jesus and he knows there is sin so deep that cannot be washed away by the waters of the Jordan River. He knows who he's not. He knows who Jesus is. And it sets him free to confess he's not worthy. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, not who reminds you to get your act together. Behold the Lamb of God who, who doesn't just give you great tips on finding your best life now, but behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, especially yours. And as we do, the baptizing of the Holy Spirit sustains and transforms us. And over time, we become not quite as double as before. We encounter Jesus, we're set free from ourselves, and we're sent out to love and to be on God's mission in this world. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would set us free from ourselves. Take us into the deep places to own and be honest and to joyfully embrace who we're not so that we can joyfully embrace who Christ is for us. And then send us out into this world to love with the love we receive from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.